Hi, and welcome to another Cyber Podcast episode. I'm your host, Christoph Limpeler, and in this episode, Nicole Hoffman, aka Threat Hunter Girl, talks to us about what it's like to be in threat intelligence. Now, what I really love about her story is that it's not a straightforward path. Her path to cybersecurity is a winding road with a bunch of different twists and turns. And honestly, it's really easy to fall into that trap of thinking, well, you know, they got that job because they had this connection or they had that experience. They're so lucky. I wish I had that. But for many people, that's just simply not the case. And so I'm hoping that by hearing Nicole's story today, it can help at least one of you who's listening break through and land either your first role or land your dream role. So with that said, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's, it's really great to have you here. I gotta unmute myself in two spots. So sorry. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's it's a an honor to be on the, on the show and be able to tell my story that could possibly help someone else. When and again, just to kind of reiterate, not only do I love your story that I've been able to read through your blog posts and a little bit on your Twitter as well, but we've also never really talked too much about threat intelligence and threat hunting on the podcast. But I know that that's an area that people are very interested interested in, especially nowadays. So I, yeah, I'm just excited to hear about the experience, hear about your story, how you found your path, but also about getting our hands dirty and talking about your current role and, and what threat intelligence means, how that feeds into threat hunting and so on and so forth. So anyway, let me back up just a little bit here. And let me start off by asking you how you first got started in IT and, and threat intelligence. What's your story? How did you find this path? Yes. Um, so it definitely wasn't a straightforward path. I it was actually, I think right out of high school, I really was pursuing a journalism path that just wasn't working out in the way that I, I wanted it to. And I just wanted something a little bit more reliable. So I actually started going to school to be uh, a nurse. Um, I actually became a medical assistant and a phlebotomist, um, which is like the, the people that can uh, draw your blood. Um, and I was on my way to becoming a, a registered nurse, and um, I ended up moving um, due to my husband being in the military. We moved to a place that wasn't super safe, and I was at the point in my degree where I had to be able to go in person to the labs, and um, I just decided I didn't want to like lose that forward motion, so I pivoted and decided to study information technology remotely. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to study yet. I just um, decided to take a general path. Um, and I found cybersecurity and decided I, I would minor in cybersecurity. Um, originally getting into the field or it, like uh, getting into the degree program, I wasn't really sure what jobs were out there. I wasn't sure um, that there was really anything other than just coding and engineering because that's all I had been exposed to thus far. And I knew coding was not for me um, because it was just kind of over my head. And um, so I just decided, I guess I'll be an engineer. And so that was really my goal. Um, it wasn't until um, I saw my first MITRE attack con, which it was the first MITRE attack con. I, I watched it virtually and um, I saw... Um, a couple threat intelligence talks. Specifically, I saw Carl Schurman. I feel like that's how you say his name. He works at CrowdStrike and he gave a talk. Um, and I had no idea what CrowdStrike was at that time. And I started investigating and I was like, this is amazing. Like, this is exactly what I want to be doing. And so I just kept researching and kept doing everything that I could to learn about that field. And I haven't looked back since. 
I want to punt this back a little bit more, but you did mention it. So I want to make sure that if somebody's listening and, and they don't really know what that means, they have that context, but we'll definitely dive a little bit deeper into it later in the episode. W- what is MITRE ATT&CK? What is that? Sure. So it's a, it's a publicly available knowledge base of adversarial um, techniques, tactics, and procedures. Basically, it's, it's like a, a knowledge base that's organized of like cyber threat actors' techniques, like how they operate their um, cyber attacks from the beginning to the end. And it's come so far in the last five years. Um, it now encompasses like the reconnaissance before the attack and then like the impact um, after after the attack as well, or the, the lasting impact, I guess, after the initial access and lateral movement and all of that things. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about MITRE ATT&CK and, and how great of a framework it is. But I'm curious. So you, you mentioned that you went through so many different jobs, career potential career paths, and so on. And, and many people go long time, sometimes even a lifetime without finding that aha moment, right? You said you you listened to that talk and you thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. But how did you even know to find that conference or what made you say, you know what, I need to go to this conference and I need to listen to this person talk? As I was getting my degree in information technology, I had a couple different, you know, odd jobs here and there. I worked for a financial institution. At one point I was, uh, I got into um financial fraud and really enjoyed it. Um, I was a a licensed forklift driver at one point, um, but I really wanted to get into a cyber position so that I can start gaining that experience so that when I, you know, graduated, I could have some some experience under my belt. Um, and the normal job route, like just a cold applying, just throwing my resumes out, was not doing anything for me. And at the time, I was in kind of a smaller area. So the amount of tech jobs was substantially lower than like a bigger city. And one person actually reached out to me that, that someone I had been trying to network with, I think for a job, and um, super kind. And he just kind of said, like, hey, like, you know, this is who I am. And, and you know, tell me a little bit more about yourself and how you got started and where you want to go in life. And I, I want to help you get there. And he told me instead of just you know, applying to um, places and not getting a, a, an interview because I don't have any experience, just start reaching out to like managers or teams, ask if you can shadow people, ask if someone wants to go out for coffee because you want to write something for your college you know, paper, um, just anything that will get you in the door to, to be able to communicate with people face to face so they could see the value that you bring and the passion that you have. And that's what I did. And I ended up landing um, an internship at a, 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 I was a cybersecurity analyst and the firm that I was working with were trying to align their software with the MITRE ATT&CK framework. And that's why I ended up watching ATTACCON and got really familiar with the, the, the framework. I love that. I was going to ask you for some practical tips and advice that you'd have for others in that situation where you literally said, right, I need more years of experience. I don't have the years of experience required to land these roles, but yet you still landed a great job. And so I think what I've heard here so far is a couple of different practical tips that if somebody's listening in there in that situation, they can use right away. 
And one of those tips is perhaps to try a bunch of different things, especially if they're not quite sure yet what they want to do, not only in IT, which is massive, but cybersecurity, which is also massive in and of itself. Try a bunch of different things, see what you're interested in, number one, to help narrow things down a little bit more. And then number two, reaching out to individuals. And I love what you mentioned there of, you could just reach out and say, hey, do you mind if we hop on a phone call or grab a coffee if they're local so that I can write this research paper for for school or for some other job? Or even if you're writing a blog post, maybe if it's for your personal blog, you could say, hey, I'd love to get your expertise on this. I'm writing a blog post about XYZ topics. And then all of a sudden that person knows you exist. Maybe they know somebody who's hiring for a position and so on and so forth. Did you have any other practical tips that I might've missed or advice even for somebody that's trying to get that that first job, but doesn't have the quote unquote years of experience required? Yeah, I mean, I think networking is is definitely huge. Just reaching out to people. Um, the, the benefit is you get to learn a lot about like different areas of tech. So even if it doesn't end up, if it doesn't end in you like gaining a position or anything like that, you still made a contact. Um, it's still someone that you can follow and get advice from. Um, and they can help you maybe potentially with your resume or um, uh, like maybe a certificate or anything that they really recommend. Or even a lot of times, almost, I think nine out of 10 times when I meet someone new in tech, um, they always have like three or four people. They're like, oh, you should meet this person. Like she just gives really good advice. And, um, and the great thing about that is like when you have a big network of people specifically in intelligence, um, it comes in handy when you're on Twitter, because a lot of the best in cyber threat intelligence comes directly from, um, Twitter, in my opinion. So I would say network as as much as you can. And it can be stressful when you're starting out. It makes you feel like maybe I'm bothering someone. But I I think overall, the community in tech is is pretty friendly and, and willing to mentor others. I love that. So you ended up landing that Intel analyst position. Can you walk us through a little bit of what that looks like, right? What what is your current role consist of? And maybe what's a, a day in the life look like for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, so that was that was the first role that I had. Um, that was uh, a few years back. Right now, I'm uh, an intelligence analyst, um, and that role specifically is different every day. And that's one of the the things I love about it. Um, I'm on the the vendor side of things, which means I am protecting a bunch of clients, and they're in in a pro- I'm providing intelligence to a bunch of clients versus if I worked for an intelligence department within one company where I'm only concerned about one company and one industry, um, I get to learn about all different industries um, and all different types of threats. And every day is different. I mean, one day it could be a ransomware investigation. One day it could be business email compromise. Um, Another day it could be something that's not even uh, necessarily a threat. It could just be a new technology that that someone's interested in and they want to learn um, how it works and what the potential risks of utilizing it or implementing it. Um, and so every, every day is a little bit different, but for the most part, I do a lot of research, a lot of open source intelligence. Um, I do a lot of writing and I do a lot of um, analysis and, and uh 
problem solving, um, but mostly I just focus on threats that are um, external to the firewall is what I like to say, which means I'm not um, doing any type of incident response or, you know, I'm not looking through logs or actively responding to um, incidents or anything like that. Are you able to share some of the tools or even resources you mentioned, open source intelligence? What are some of those resources that you you lean on heavily? I, I love how you mentioned Twitter being a great source of that too. Can you kind of explain a little bit more about what you mean with that? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of great security researchers and intelligence firms and um, things like that that are on Twitter that that share information. I mean, Bleeping Computer is, is one that shares a lot of great information. Um, and so sometimes you'll see IP addresses or domains or hashes that'll be shared and um, it'll add a little bit of context and things like that. Maybe someone's already put it on VirusTotal, um, like for malware samples and things like that. Uh, so VirusTotal is great. Um, the only thing you have to keep in mind with VirusTotal when it comes to files is that everything you upload to VirusTotal is now publicly available. So you just have to be careful with that. Um, but if you're on the research side and you're just researching things that are already in existence, um, it's it's pretty useful. Um, and then Google, honestly, <laughs> Google's the best uh, tool that I think anyone can could really um have an intelligence, in my opinion. Um, it's You can find a lot in, in previous reports and things like that. Um, Alien Vault's another great tool. Uh, they have like an OTX. They have a lot of great indicators and context and things like that. I'm trying to think of what else I utilize. Well, and, and you mentioned MITRE ATT&CK framework. Where does that fit into your day-to-day? Yeah, so um, the way that I utilize uh, the MITRE ATT&CK framework is that um, if I'm writing a threat, a, por- a report on a specific uh, type of threat, like let's say like the log4j or, or like let's say like a specific ransomware group and, and their typical operations, I utilize the MITRE attack framework to kind of frame my reports. Like I want to be able to provide not just a list of indicators at the end, but I want to be able to provide like what are the specific behaviors in your environment that you should also look for? Like, what are the specific uh, attack vectors? Like, how are they getting into the network? Whether it be phishing or are they exploiting a specific vulnerability? And if you patch it, then you'd be, you know, secure from that. Also, how are they moving laterally in your environment? Um, so a lot of times you'll see like the headers in my reports are literally MITRE attack tactics because I feel like um, <laughs> it. It's kind of like an, a universal language that a lot of people in tech understand or in security. And I, if something that I need is not already in the MITRE ATT&CK um, framework or in the knowledge base, um, the bones are still there. So like the, um, Katie Nichols, she's over at Red Canary, but she used to be over at MITRE ATT&CK. And she wrote some amazing blogs on the ATT&CK uh, site. So if you're looking to get into what attack is, learn more, learn how to use it, I would highly suggest starting there in their blog. But she wrote a blog um, a few years back about how to go through an intelligence report on, uh, you know, whether it be a specific uh, threat actor or an incident and pick out from the words, the, the techniques from the MITRE attack. So you, you'd kind of be mapping it yourself manually. And sometimes I do do that just to make it more helpful for the clients. 
And so once you write those reports, what happens with those reports? Who takes action on them, right? Is it a, a threat hunting group or who are those stakeholders that then take the the valuable information you just put in a report format and then actually take action on that? All, all sorts of teams. It, it, it could be once, I mean, I, I kind of just delivered and then and then it gets actioned on on their side. I don't really get to see the the other side of it. I kind of just am the I'm the messenger. So it really does depend on the organization who you're working or what you're working on at that point in time. It's not so much like you said if you were in a department that strictly feeds that information for for a specific company um, because it's different potentially every single day. You don't necessarily know who's going to be reading it. Is that am I getting that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I primarily kind of have an idea, but it, it could be one of those uh, something that's um, super important to some people and it gets passed around more or it could be just discussed in a meeting or a presentation. It could be fed to a SOC. Um, there's lots of different things that could happen on, on their side. Um, but I typically get feedback like, hey, this is amazing or, hey, can I get more information on this or that? Um and so it's it's super rewarding for me because I feel like in general um, in cybersecurity we just don't have a lot of time to do a lot of stuff. Um, but I have, I mean, my job is research, so I get to you know I get to do that extra research for my clients um, because I know that they're super busy. And so um, it's for me it's very fulfilling because I understand being super busy and, and being able to help them. This is kind of a weird question, but it's something I've been asking myself a lot recently, which is how do you become really good at research? I, I think obviously it's something that people can learn. I do think some people are better at it than others. And you mentioned earlier on that at one point in time, you considered being a journalist. So it, it kind of sounds like you're naturally interested and predisposed in, in being good at researching things. But what would you say has helped you really truly find information that may not be readily available at the surface that you had to to dive really deep to find but then when you found it you're like oh wow yeah this is this is fantastic what what would you say are some great ways of getting to that level with with research well this is a great great question and i like to quote um the second attack on um, there was a really great talk by Chris Thayer. I think he's over at um, MasterCard. He gave a talk on on threat hunting, and he quote he he had this amazing quote, and he basically said, "Don't dress for the job you do. Do the job that you want to do. So if you want to." threat hunt, then go do it yourself, whether it's in your home lab or try to get people on board at work to do it, um, even if it's like a side project. And so with research, it's really just a matter of doing it. Um, and um, for me, it's the way that I improve what I'm doing is I also like to like lean on my um, my coworkers on like how are they doing it? Um, maybe I can get some tips on it. Um, I also will utilize um, a lot of conferences and I'll like specifically um, there's a, a I believe it's a SANS OSINT conference. Um, CTI conference. There's usually a lot of great information in those. Um, but really, I think what really made me a really great um, researcher is being able to 
um, do it professionally and have that feedback because when you're doing it on your own, you don't really know if you're doing a good job or not. I guess if you, you know, start a blog and you're getting feedback from the blog, but it it can be difficult to know like how well you're performing without that feedback from, you know, either a management or um, clients and things like that. Um, But I will say, a lot of times when you have um, in, like threat intelligence uh, job interviews, they will typically ask you to do some type of research report. Um, so I always say if, if you're thinking about it, um, just kind of go through the news, go through like Bleeping Computer um, or, um, you know, other cybersecurity news sites and look at um, who, uh, threat groups that are in, excuse me, in the news, look at recent vulnerabilities and just try and write a paper about it. Like try and figure out mm-hmm. what it is, the who, what, when, where, why, and, and just write about it. And that's really like the, the start of it. And as you get going and, um, learn about more topics. And I'm kind of blessed because I, I do have a full-time job that allows me to do it. So I don't necessarily get to pick my research topics. They just kind of come at me every day. Um, so I'm constantly learning about new things and researching. Um, and if there's ever a time where I'm just completely lost, and that's kind of the time where I'll reach out to my team or um, my my network out outside of my job, and and say who who maybe knows how to do this better than than I do. You recently created two different things that I want to talk about before we move on to to the quick fire round and start to wrap up. But the first one is what you call the cognitive stairways of analysis, which is your own analytic framework. Can you explain a little bit more of what that is? Yeah, sure. So I I wanted to write a blog um, a while back on how analysts analyze data specifically. And um, I've noticed in like the intelligence lifecycle and a lot of other um, processes, analysis is just a step. But we almost like as a community assume that everyone performs analysis the same way. And for me, I have ADHD and my brain just doesn't work the same. And I like to know how things work um, to be able to explain it and provide tips. So I um, did a lot of research on how are we currently performing analysis? And then I was interested, like, how are other people performing analysis? Like, how's the medical field? How is scientists, uh, weather people, um, all sorts of, of different fields that I was investigating. Even criminal intelligence was was super fascinating. And I kind of took my favorite, like, key findings from each um, to make my own. And I put kind of put the steps in order that makes sense from like my analytic process when I'm doing analysis. Um, and I, I created different stairways for different scenarios that I have personally, um, had to deal with, um, in tech. Like one of them could be, um, the first stairway is like an incident response stairway. If you're actively, um, responding to an incident, there's a, a a brainstorming slash like a red team type one where you're not necessarily doing a full red team engagement, but you're just kind of thinking like, am I uh, vulnerable to that thing? Or I wonder what would happen if I did this, Um, those types of analysis where you kind of have to have some type of organizational or scope. Um, And then I also have an OSINT stairway as well. That's one of my newer ones that, um, uh, I use often for, for my uh, OSINT analysis just to kind of stay on 
uh, on scope and make sure that I'm not going down any rabbit holes or things like that. Right. I, I haven't had a chance to dive deep into it yet. I just saw that you had come up with that. I had to bring it up. I'm definitely going to be spending more time going through that afterwards. And uh, I'll, I'll be asking you too on, on where we can find that information and, and where your blog is. But the other thing that you recently released and uh, that I, I want you to talk a little bit more about is the Mighty Threat Intelligence Warrior, which as I understand it, is your very first book. So first of all, congratulations. And second of all, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, definitely. Um, it is my first book, and it is a children's picture book, um, primarily for kids that are um, from preschool to fifth grade, about um, kids outside of that age range could definitely enjoy it. But that's primarily the range that I, I find is uh, best suited for the book. Um, and I was inspired to write the book by my kids because my kids just love hearing about what I do and um they love learning about hackers and um, I'm very adamant about telling them like there's not all hackers are bad. There's good hackers and bad hackers. And, um, and so I just um, thought it would be really cool to write a book specifically just for them because I know they would love it. Um, but as I started researching to try to get a publisher, I realized there's just this huge gap in the market. Um, there's a lot of girls who code, kids who code, and a lot of robotics, STEM books for kids, but there's not a whole lot of cybersecurity um, outside of just the general education of what cybersecurity is, like, you know, cybersecurity best practices for kids. And it was, I struggled to try to find a um, publisher. So I actually ended up forming my own publishing company um, so that I could publish it, um, which opens up the ability to create uh, additional books. So this one will actually be a series. So I am working on the sequel um, and I do plan on making more um, children's books that are focusing on STEM education. That's fantastic. And I hope you inspire others to do something similar because you're absolutely right. We need more of these kinds of books so that kids can start young and understanding that they shouldn't have to wait until they're in high school or college or even later to start learning about super important cybersecurity topics. So thank you for doing that. And uh, definitely I'm going to have to grab a copy. And so on, on that note, as we wrap up the episode, I like to do a quick fire round, which are just really quick and short questions and answers. So whatever pops in your head first, just go with that. And the first one's going to be, what are some of your favorite hobbies? Um, I love to build Lego. And I love um, comic books. You love to build, build what? I'm sorry, you cut out for a second. A Lego. Oh, Lego. Lego sets? Wait, I think I... Yes, I'm I'm a huge Lego person. I have my own... Uh, I, I host a Lego happy hour on Discord. I, I got huge into Lego during the pandemic. I think I saw a Harry Potter build uh, probably on your blog or, or Twitter. That looked really impressive. I didn't realize you built that. I thought it was something pre-made or something. That's how good it looks. So that's fantastic. I love that. The second question, and this one is a, is a little bit more of a, a difficult one, but whatever pops in your head first. And the question is, in your opinion, what's one area that we're missing the mark, either in terms of organization, society, individuals, whatever, in terms of cybersecurity? Question never gets easier. <laughs> I think I think reusing passwords and a lot of people will you like outside of um, the cybersecurity world, but just the general public. A lot of people like to utilize their work email for personal things like Amazon, Netflix, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And they don't necessarily understand that when those things get breached and those passwords go out there. Um, 
you know, they may be using those passwords in other places and, and it's just an easy access for threat actors. So I, I think password management and, and just really just cybersecurity awareness when it comes to passwords, I, th- I think we could do better as a society. Those are two really good ones. I'd have to agree with that. Nicole, if people want to follow up with you, how can they connect and reach out? Yeah, so you can um, reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is threathuntergirl without the I. Um, or you can go on my blog if you want to reach me on um, social media. Both of my, all my social media is on my blog as well, which is threathuntergirl.com with the I. <laughs> and then if you want to know more about the framework, you can go to cognitivestairwaysofanalysis.com. Um, and then I'm also on Discord in the cyber channel. Um, you can find me if you want to add me or ask me any questions on there as well. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into the episode. Nicole, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. In fact, people listening in the audience right now, please reach out to Nicole after this via social media. She's on Twitter, at ThreatHunterGirl, I believe without the I then. And uh, But you'll be able to find her even on here, especially if you're on Twitter Spaces. You should be able to tap her profile, I believe. But yeah, send her a tweet. Thank you, or thank her for for her time and for sharing on the podcast today. And definitely be sure to check out her new book and, and grab a copy as well. And check out the Cognitive Stairways of Analysis. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.